today on episode number 140 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Stephen Michaels helps us think outside the LMS. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm absolutely thrilled today to be welcoming Stephen Michael to the show. He is a professor of political science and also the director of university assessment at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut. He's been teaching there since 2002 and is involved with initiatives related to assessment, digital pedagogy, and undergraduate research. His most recent book, is Sinclair Lewis and American Democracy. Steve, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hello, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. As I was reading your bio, even though I knew this already, I just realized that we are about as far away as you could possibly be from each other in the United States. <laughs> that is correct. I will not be I sharing the weather. The weather is probably better. Yes, I will not be the sharing The weather is probably that. better there. <laughs> I would think so. My kids would get a kick out of it. It's probably still snowing there, at least some, some little bit. A little bit. It's not good. There's nothing good to say about the weather. It's very cold today. Oh, okay. Well, we'll we'll move we'll move on to the next subject. And I and I didn't <laughs> think I'd ever start one of the podcasts talking about Blackboard, but I know you have some intriguing data to tell us that was recently released by Blackboard. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, Blackboard released some interesting statistics on their user data in October. It was a bit surprising. It turns out that mostly it's not used to its full capacity. 77% of its use, according to its data, accounts for what they call supplementary or complementary use, which mainly means, you know, one-way uh, communication from faculty to students, you know, uploading a syllabi or some, some readings. Uh, and then the, the percentage of faculty who really use it to its fullest uh, only accounted for about 2%. So it seems to me like a huge lost opportunity um, with the learning management systems, you know, Blackboard in particular is the one that I'm most familiar with. Uh, but it was it was just surprising and a little shocking. And it, I mean, there's a couple ways to to read that. Is you know, on one hand, faculty aren't using it, but also I think I'm a little bit inclined to blame Blackboard a little bit because you know every technology suggests how it should be used, and you know what is it about Blackboard or the learning management system in general that suggests this kind of usage rather than a use that's a little bit more engaged. I'll be posting a link to this data in the show notes a little bit lower in the section than you were talking about. They talked about the proportion of course time by tool used and 58% was time being spent used on course content, which as you said, um, it's, it's sort of shocking and not shocking all at the same time because this really does come down to our own pedagogy. And I'm super excited to get to hear from you a little bit on what's changed for you as you think about teaching in general, but specifically teaching online. Take us back to 2004 to simpler times to your first online course. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty bad, I have to say. Um, I didn't really 
think much about what it should be. I sort of, I think I did what most people do is just try to create an environment. I, you know, I took my existing content and just, you know, upload it a little bit and ask some discussion questions, not making use of, uh, you know, even back then in 2004, we had, you know, videos and, and things that were a little bit more interactive. And I didn't use all the tools that were even available in, in Blackboard. And then we had a, a series of speakers on campus. And one of the speakers, and I can't remember his name, talked about the importance of digital personality. And it was so liberating. I thought, wait a minute, I can be myself online and <laughs> when I'm talking with my students. So I, I redid the content and made it more conversational. Um, I included some pictures and some videos. I even had some jokes. Um, I changed the, the, the questions to make them a little bit more open-ended, um, you know, that would re require students to take the questions and, and um, you know, do research or take them in, and interpret them in a way that made sense for them. So it was much more open-ended. And it was so so much more enjoyable. I know from my perspective, it, it didn't feel like a, a qualitatively different experience. It was more just about a different way of engaging. And the, the course evaluations changed considerably too. Uh, up till that point, the first couple of semesters when I was teaching, my course evaluations were much lower than they were for my on-ground courses. And I just thought that was kind of how it was supposed to be. Uh, but now, um, you know, the more I think about it, the more deliberate I am with how I put my courses together, that the, the valuations for my online courses and, um, are even higher than my on-ground courses, which is pretty great. One of the themes I hear you talking about in there is, yes, being authentic and <clears throat> engaging, but also a sense of surprise. Do you find that it is easier or harder to have that sense of surprise in an online class versus an in-person, or is it just as equally challenging and exhilarating to try to have that, that sense of surprise and curiosity in the class? Uh, it's definitely more difficult. It's only because, you know, one of the things that I, I try to do is, you know, you, you want some kind of structure um, for an online course. Students oftentimes, you know, for as tech savvy as we think they are, they're very anxious about taking an online course. You know, they're kind of, it's like being kicked into the middle of a pool, you know, you don't exactly know where you are. Um, and they, very quickly, they need a sense of what's going on and what the expectations are. So I think, you know, if when I'm in an on-ground class, I try to engage with them and, you know, explore the unknown and make it a little more student-directed as, sort of, you know, one of the first objectives. But in an online course, my first goal is to have them understand what's going on. Um, the structure is almost required, right, if you're going to take an on online course, um, which is, you know, the learning management system excels at structure. Um, but that is also its greatest weakness that um, it structures learning. It makes, you know, students, especially if they take multiple courses at the same institution, they know where to find things, right? Mm -hmm. The syllabus is always in the same place. The discussion board is always in the same place. It's structured in the same way. Clunky, you have to click around a lot, but, you know, they kind of get a lay of the land soon enough, but um, then it becomes problematic. You know, where do you go from there? Where do you, you know, does Blackboard or learning management system give us the same, um, it certainly gives a structure, but does it give us something more than that? Or is it, you know, is it a ceiling more than a floor? Um, and that's sort of the problem I have with it. I know one of the first forays you had taking yourself and the students out of a learning management system involved Google Blogger. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, I, you know, I, it became obvious to me that, you know, the most important part of uh, an online course or a learning management system is discussion board. You know, that's where all the students come together. Um, all the research shows that you know, of an online experience, students are most dissatisfied with the amount that they engage with the other students in the class. So I was, I was never a big fan of the Blackboard discussion board. Um, even if you know how to work it, it seems pretty clunky. There's always one or more two clicks than there should be. 
and, I, and students don't seem to know how to gather all the comments. So there wasn't a lot of engagement and it seemed like students were doing what I would call like the, the, the drop-in uh, visit. You know, they would open up the learning management system and they would have a, a big block post, you know, 200, 300 words, you know, and it didn't sound like they had read what other students were posting um, or that they had came back, you know, after their post to see what other students said in response to them. So they were doing the minimal expectations for the, for the course, but they weren't really engaging. And it seemed to me that the, the better way, you know, rather than the structure of the Blackboard discussion was uh, something that the students were a little bit more familiar with. So this was, you know, 2006 or 2007. And, you know, blogs were very big back then. So, and Google Blogger had this free platform. So I just started a, a, a blog for the course and I used the uh, existing Blackboard shell. So I hosted it in Blackboard, but the students could go right in there. And I, I noticed immediately that the level of engagement with the students was greater, that the, the posts were longer, that they were referring to what each other had said, which is, which is really important. The participation was greater. They were saying more things. So it, it was sort of my first inkling that, you know, where we present our materials and, and the, the, the place of the, the locus of the discussion, the, uh, you know, the aesthetics really impacts the quality of the conversation and the engagement. I was teaching the other night. I'm, I'm fortunate I get to teach a few times a year in a doctoral program that's not at my normal full-time institution. And I'm also fortunate that they let me play a little bit because the, the normal way that these <laughs> doctoral students, they, they use the, I won't say the name of the product, but it's just a very bloated synchronous video conferencing tool. And they seem to just be in this arms race, or I guess features race to say, you know, these synchronous conferencing tools are going to have every feature there, but then it's confusing to use and it causes crashes and bandwidth issues and all of this. And the one that I've mentioned on the show before that I just love is called Zoom. And I don't make any money by anyone who gets interested in Zoom. But what it has not done is it has not participated in that features race. And and people just come there. You talk about discussions. You come on that tool and you're just, it looks like you're sitting around a table. You can see everybody's face if you want, or you can click the button to just have it focused on the person who's talking and it automatically yeah. switches the view to do that. And then it's got breakout rooms. So, Hey, well, let's go. It's going to, you know, I'm going to send you out to some breakout rooms. I want you to talk about the three biggest challenges you have with this and then come back. And it's just so natural. It really feels like a true discussion, but so many times these asynchronous discussion tools they're so clunky and then you have to click through to see it. And oftentimes it is pretty bloated. So it takes a while for it to load on your page. And especially if you're on a mobile device, goodness gracious, are you ever going to yeah, have exactly. to wait? Yeah. And I know one of the tools that you have used to get outside of the learning management system, but also to start to have quicker discussions and just a little bit, a little bit less structured is Slack. And that's actually first what got me thinking, we need to have you on teaching in higher ed. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you've used Slack and how that sort of changed the structure for you? Yeah, I heard about Slack a couple of years ago. I can't remember where, and this is, I mean, it's, everyone knows what it is now, I think, or has seen it or is familiar enough with it. But you know, whenever I hear about a new tech tool, I'm one of those people that can't help but, you know, <laughs> checking it out. So I, I signed up for an account and I got in there and I was originally thinking that I would use it for some committee work because I do a lot of assessment things. And I thought I needed a, a, a place where I could bring faculty together and discuss, you know, reports or whatever we were working on and to post some documents. And my first reaction was the, it was really simple, which I liked. It was good to look at, which is important, but it might be a little bit too involved for faculty members 
um, might be too oppressive, um, you know, just for committee work. But then I thought, well, this is perfect for a class. You know, the hub of any good class should be the discussion board. I mean, really what Slack does, it's, it builds itself around the discussion board. Um, it calls them channels. Uh, it's very personalizable. Um, so you can create as many different channels to have conversation conversations on as you need. Um, you can set them up thematically or you could set them up according to groups. And it, it was just really, really simple. Um, and not only is it simple, but it's also customizable. They have a lot of different um, plugins that you can do that, that are put together by third parties. Um, so you can make it as simple as, or as complicated as you like. Um, and the other thing that, I mean, just the, the quality of the conversation was amazing. So I, I set the, this up, this was last summer when I first used it. Um, so I sent out the invites to the students and three or four days before the class even started, um, students were signing on and they, they didn't know what to expect. So they were looking around. I had the syllabus posted, uh, posted already. And I could see that they were on because there's a little light next to their name. So I started sending them messages. So we had sort of the, the meet and greet channel. Uh, and at, at one point there were four or five students that, and we were all talking about their expectations for the course and what they thought about Slack. And this was before the semester even started. And I thought, this would never happen on Blackboard. Um, the fact that everyone is here looking, you know, I'm asking them about, um, you know, the features and you know, what features should we add. And, um, one of the students was on his mobile phone because he had downloaded the Android or the iOS app. And he was just astonished that he was, you know, in class while he was out somewhere. Students love the mobile capacity. And I think that's one of the things that Blackboard has definitely fallen behind on the, the, the mobile earnings race. Students are all about the mobile. You know, they like to read on the phones. I think it's a little weird to read, you know, Hobbes on my phone, but the students are fine with it, <laughs> um, provided that we can make it available to them. So that was a really great experience. And the other thing, but what you were saying about the asynchronous, I think things are really important. Um, during that course, there was that awful shooting in Orlando, that one, um, I guess, a Saturday night into Sunday morning. So, you know, I got up and I saw the news and I thought, oh, this is terrible. And we were talking about something in class related to um criminal justice or, you know, police violence or something. And it seemed relevant. So I, I posted something. Um, and because the mobile app has a notifications feature. So I think it was nine 30 or 10 o'clock in the morning. So I posted something that I thought that students would be interested in reading that was relevant to the current event at the day at the time. And four or five students jumped on and we were having this live conversation in response to a current event that was going on that morning. Um, so students, some students were watching CNN, someone was doing it following the Twitter feed about what was going on. So we were talking about a live news event as it happened um, on a Sunday morning through Slack. Um, and it, I mean, that for me was sort of the, the wake up call that, you know, again, this would never happen on a, a typical learning management system or something that was asynchronous or that some, something that students couldn't have, you know, the mobile notification. I mean, probably half of them were in, in bed still, right? They, they were in bed, the notification came on, they grabbed their phone, all of a sudden they're in class. Um, so they really had a, a really, a, you know, a qualitative change in the, the nature of the discussion that really impressed me. The learning management system that we use at our school is Canvas. And I also teach on Blackboard at the other institution I teach at occasionally. And I I have with Can Canvas, because it is so mobile friendly, I've just challenged myself to not have anything that a student couldn't access on their mobile device. And that has made a pretty big difference. I used to do what I call pen casts, uh, and it was a proprietary PDF output that the actual smart pen enabled. And that meant they had to be sitting in front of a computer. And so I stopped using that. Now I do everything on the iPad with a stylus and it outputs to an MP4 that's then on YouTube. And that just makes mm -hmm. such a difference where anytime I can lower the barriers to them being able to learn. But as you're talking, 
I'm thinking about just how powerful Slack is for that engagement. And it's very hard to articulate, but you just did. <laughs> but I have a hard time sometimes explaining to people why it's so good and just 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 how it enables those kinds of conversations. And I wish there were a way to have the kind of structure in the sense of, I think it's helpful to our students to have the centralized calendar that something like Canvas offers. They can see all their reading assignments when they're due, all the tests, all the papers, it's all there in a calendar that if enough of their professors are using the learning management system means they can even subscribe to that and have it all on their phone and just keep themselves that much more organized, which I think is critical for all our students, but especially our most at-risk students. But anyway, it's just interesting to hear you talk about. Now, when you taught with Slack, you were entirely on Slack. You did not use the learning management system, or did you use that for your grade book? I can't remember what you said. Yeah, I'm very invested in Google also in terms mm. of supporting. Um, so I, I had I had them keep their work in Google Docs, so they all created a doc, which they're very familiar with that. I just saw a statistic the other day that I think 70 million um, elementary school and high school students are using Google Docs mm. of some kind. Um, that it's really spread. Uh, so they're very familiar with that. So I had them use that. Um, I keep grades in a Google spreadsheet um, that I post and I keep, I keep all the grades in the same spreadsheet, but I used um, like the last three numbers of student ID. So no one knows who the, whose grades are whose. That's kind of old school. Remember back in the back in the you know seventies and eighties, I guess before technology, the, the professors used to post grades outside their doors or mm-hmm. whatever on the on the strips of paper. Yeah. So it's it, it's a little bit like that. And uh, so I've been doing that for a while, and that's actually worked really well. Um, when I first thought about um, posting the classes grades, I was a little apprehensive. I thought it might lead to some grade grubbing or or or, or whatnot. But it's really actually supported teaching and learning a little bit because the, the students know where they are with regard to the rest of the students in the class. Uh, you know, sometimes a B minus is a good grade and that they might not know that. Uh, sometimes they, they, they catch errors that I make, which has also um, been, been helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, I, I try not to encourage, I know they're a little obsessed with grades sometimes and I try not to encourage that, but you know, also understanding why they are a little preoccupied with grades sometimes, I think gives me a little credibility. So you know, I, I know what they're interested in and, uh, and can speak to that. One of the other issues I know you bring up, you talked about the learning management system and how we should be thinking about its overstructure and how that might minimize the true connected learning opportunities that we could have with our students. Talk a bit about some of your concerns around OER textbooks. I mean, I, I love the OER concept. I mean, I've, I've been waging a battle against you know overpriced textbooks for a while. Um, I can't remember the last time I had students buy a textbook. I mean, they're they're expensive. Even with American government, um, the, the stripped down versions of, of textbooks can run fifty or sixty dollars. You know, most of the information that's in there is available online. You know, they, and the textbook manufacturers, you know, they they come up with a, an updated version every two years after the midterm elections. So they you know they update a little bit. Um, so I've been moving away from textbooks for a while. Um, but my concern about the OER is. It has a, the potential to, to be great um, that, you, you know, you can put together sources, you can have a little mashup, you know, this book and that book, and there's a lot of free things on the web. But my concern about the, the OER is that in some respect, there's still textbooks, right? They're, that they're just, they're cheaper and they're digital. The, the structure is still there. The, you know, the way it circumscribes learning is still there. Uh, to make the new textbooks, I guess, the value from the new textbooks a lot of times comes from the ancillaries, right? So textbook companies uh, are producing videos and different uh, personalized learning tools or platforms that come with a textbook. 
Uh, and that, in a lot of ways, that makes it worse because, you know, not only are you having the, the printed structure information, but you're also being expected to watch videos or to, to take exams. Um, and I think it makes it even easier for instructors to not personalize the class or put the, together the material in a way that requires students to critically engage with the material. One of the tools I know you're using to try to counteract some of that is called hypothesis. We've talked about it before on the show, but I don't think we can talk about it enough just in terms of some of the innovative ways <laughs> yeah. people are using it. Can you share your experience with hypothesis? Yeah, this is my first semester using it. Um, so I'm actually not using Slack this semester. I've created a Google site. that They just redid sites. The, the new feature is that you could, it's sort of like Google Docs and you can have multiple editors. So I'm having the students put together the website. Um, so the first step in creating the content is um, we've, it's for American political thought. We've sort of picked four points of American political history beginning with the founding, and we've identi- identified a couple of primary source documents that we think are interesting and important. So I had them use Hypothesis, which is a Chrome extension. Uh, it's very simple to, um, to add onto Chrome. And then as you're reading the document, you can either highlight or make annotations and the, the um, hypothesis keeps track of who does what and who says what and aggregates it all on their website, uh, which is great for grading. It's been great for the students because it, it forces them to slow down a little bit. Um, they can see how their classmates are interacting with, with the text, you know, line by line, who's thinking what. And we're using the annotations to put together some uh, questions. So the course is very inquiry-based learning. So I had them all make two or three comments, uh, annotations for each document. Um, I'm asking that for every document, they're starting a conversation or a line of inquiry or qualifying or building on someone else's line of inquiry. So, um, you know, they're having to point out something that's of interest to them and also engage with someone else who's also identified something that's interesting. And we've been working through that in class and putting together groups, students who have similar lines of interest. We've been, I've been putting them together. So they've been researching uh, and then they're going to write up little reports and we're going to use that as the content for the Google site. With Hypothesis, I've used it before, but I've just used it where it's all public. Are you having their annotations public out that any of us could see, or is this something that's just kept private for your class? No, it's private. You, th- there is a public feature. Uh, I've, I've created a separate private group for the course, So, and I sent out the, the link to the students. So when they sign up to create the, the account, they're automatically put in the group for the course. So all the annotations they make for the group are private. Okay. If I was in your Google site, then I would see those same hypotheses. But since I'm not, I can't. That's that's the way it's working. That's right. It's Got right. it. And I know you're also making use of Google Slides and QuickTime in your teaching. I'd love to hear a bit about that too. Yeah, I, I'm. I really like Google. Um, just it's the the platforms are simple. They're intuitive. They they speak together, which and speak to each other, which is really important. So um, I'm. Just, I think last year started making voiceover videos. Um, I'm fl- flipping my class a little bit in an in automated way. I started doing this last year. The students really responded to it well. I realized that, you know, lecturing is maybe not the best use of class time when you're working through some difficult, you know, ancient texts the students might not, um, you know, they're, they're reading on their own before they come to class, but, you know, what are they getting out of it? Um, and then we come to class and I explain to them what they should have already known um, that they've struggled through. And then I send them on their way when they have to write difficult papers, uh, which seems to me not a very good way to do things. So I've been doing voiceover videos, um, not video video. I don't, I don't need to see myself on screen. Um, especially I don't want to see my, myself age, right? If, if these <laughs> videos are really good, I'd like to use them for a long time and I don't want anybody to, to see me looking <laughs> to really good on video that. and then have to come to class and, 
you know, I look like this. So, so I've just been doing the video. Um, I, so I do, I do Google slides and I do the voiceover through QuickTime, um, quick edits, and I upload them through YouTube and then I put them on the Google site. Um, and it's really great that I can use the slides then in class to, you know, I just project them and, 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 and does anybody have any questions about this slide and the slide and then really use class time to work through the material to ask analytical questions. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things um, that people have noticed about flip classes is that you really need to know what you're doing with them in class, right? It's not just enough to expose them. But I noticed immediately that the quality of the, the conversation is just so much improved. The, the questions that they have, that they really do watch the videos and, and, and take notes and they, they come with good questions. Not only that, but we're able to, um, I have them write little micro essays every week. Uh, so we start those essays in class. So there's a little bit of time that we're able to spend, you know, beginning the writing assignments and working through the writing assignments. So the quality of their written work has improved also. One of the things I've heard that's going on with Google Slides too is that they've added some ways to engage with students. So some kind of polling slides or quiz type slides that students can engage with on their phones. And I think they also added something where students could pose questions on their mobile devices using Google Slides. And again, I haven't tried it yet, but there's just exciting innovations that are happening there to create perhaps a, a bit more engagement in a class as well. You know, they added the poll everywhere um, function a couple months ago. So that's an option. If, if you're using poll everywhere, you can actually embed the questions from poll everywhere uh, into the slide and then have students use their phones. Okay. Um, and I've used Slack as, a, as a, a mobile device too, where you can, you know, you can create a poll on a channel and then students can pull out their phones um, and then project the, the Slack channel onto the screen in the class. Mm, that's great. That's great. I wanted to mention that I, like you, I don't do a ton of video where it's my face on the video. I, I typically use slides, but there are occasions where I think it's helpful and I can't really explain to you <laughs> when I do and don't, <laughs> but now you've got me thinking about aging. Goodness gracious. <laughs> but um, what I just realized that Snagit is the screenshot tool that I have been using for decades now, as crazy as that is to say about a piece of software. And they now have it where I can be having a video of one of my PowerPoints and I can switch back and forth between my webcam and the PowerPoint. Because a lot of times you see people where they just have themselves in the lower right hand or right, right. corner kind of thing. But if you had a need where you wanted to change it up a little bit and, oh, now you can see my face and see my expression and, oh, now you can see my slides, it's as easy as just clicking back and forth. And I thought that's pretty nice. And Snagit does, it's kind of like a little mini toolkit. It does all kinds of things, just everything from if a faculty member asks me a question about something on our learning management system, I can just go create a simple GIF for them or I can do a quick screencast or even just grab a screenshot and put an arrow and show them where to click or stuff. So it's just a really nice, nice tool that is, is not free. Like QuickTime is free for, <laughs> for us, but uh, is, is a nice, nice tool that I find myself using more and more. Well, let's yeah, that would be a nice feature. I wonder about that, about the either, or, you know, if I want to have my, my face on there or not. Um, I wonder if it's too, if it would distract the students or if it would distract me, I'm not sure. I did see a study, and I, I don't know if this has been replicated in any way, but that said that it made no difference if we show ourselves on the video in terms of the students learning. There's no difference in terms of comprehension or anything like that. And that it just, there was a slight bit of maybe more personal approach, but that there's not a learning benefit by doing it. So <laughs> you don't have to feel... Well, that's good to know. One of, one of the most important things I, that I've realized about 
uh, making the videos. And I can't remember where I heard this, but you know, I, I, my reluctance to go to, to do this for a long time had to do with the production value. Um, you know, am I going to sound right? Am I going to, you know, the slide's going to be good. And, and then I just, you know, read somewhere that, you know, it doesn't matter so much with the production value. And not only that, I would go far further and say, this is one thing I've learned from my students. They like it when it's a little, uh, <laughs> when it seems a little unprofessional, you know, I tell jokes on, on the video sometimes I don't script what I'm going to write. I just, you know, start and, you know, and, and they say it's a lot like class and they really appreciate that. So if any of your listeners are thinking that they want to do some videos or audio recording to add to their courses, you know, please do not worry about the production value. Um, you know, make it as much like you as possible and it'll work. I sneezed once in one of my pen casts and you would have thought I was like a comedian that was about to take my show on the road <laughs> just because I didn't edit that out. They just loved it. They love that we're human and that it seems like we're talking to them just in a casual conversation. I, I totally concur. Before we get to the recommendations part, I don't want to miss this piece of what you have to offer, which is we've talked about a number of different tools talked about learning management system versus not using one. And I wonder if you would just share a bit about your overall philosophy for what tools you use, how many you use. I mean, how do you decide whether or not, oh, she just talked about this great new tool. Should I use that one? What are some of the thoughts that come to mind when you decide your possible tools for a course? I'm a little worried sometimes that I get caught up with with the new things, but I think I've come to realize that teaching should be learner-driven, not tool-driven. And we really need to take a step back and think about, you know, what we want our students to do or we, what we want them to know, and then see how the technology that we incorporate into the class can, can serve that um, rather than just find something that's, that's, that's new or shiny and try to make it work in the classroom. The other thing that I, I've come to realize is, I'm, you know, for, is, is there are a lot of tools, you know, communications tools or pedagogical tools. I've also started to think about from a student perspective that, you know, if they have five courses and all of us are using our, our favorite new pedagogical tool, you know, three, four, five different things, that could get really overwhelming for them. Uh, I can't imagine, that, you know, walking into class, you know, class of the first day a week and having to sign on for 15 new accounts for different things, you know, whether it's Slack or, or whatnot. So I really try to keep it as simple as possible. So, um, you know, the students know, I think Google docs now. So I don't really count that as something new that they have to do. But, you know, whether it's hypothesis, I would count that as something new. They had to start an account. I actually did a video about um, to show them how to sign up for it and, and how it works and what my expectations are in terms of the, the technological requirements. I use the Remind app a lot. Um, I count that sort of as one just because it's something else. It's another place they have to look at for notifications, even if it's just their phone. So I really try to keep it keep it simple so they can, uh, I obviously want to focus on the material, but I don't want to, to have them overextended because, you know, for all the conversation about our students being digital natives, uh, I mean, they're, they're still learning and they're still young and they might not have all the experience that we do to think critically about the technology that they use or to be able to manage their time well uh, or to be organized in a way that all of us are getting things done, people are, right? They don't have all these skills. So I really want them to focus on the content without having to spread themselves a little too thin in their attention. Another reason that I find for keeping my tool set as minimal as it can be is just if I'm going to break out of the LMS, then I do need to keep track of who's accepted that invitation. 
in my in my doctoral class we're using digo which is a social bookmarking tool and that's on my list of things to do today because i don't think i've seen them all (laughs) show up as far as so and so accepted your invitation so i got to go compare the roster or get a ta to do that and it's just one more thing not that i'm not willing to do it but like you said if if it doesn't actually benefit their learning support them better than you know the extra work just isn't going to pay off for any of us that's right i was so i also worry about the, the private versus public aspect of it a little, a little bit i've never taught with twitter but uh, i know i know some people teach with twitter very well uh, one of my colleagues here pillar monday she teaches spanish and she's she has a little community around the world with native speakers so the students in her class get to communicate with people and that's really great but i'm a little apprehensive about um, having our students present their work, whether it's, you know, written or videos. Um, I think that, you know, in general, technology is better bringing the world into the classroom um, than it is taking the classroom out into the world. Thankfully, not everything I did during my undergraduate career, career is posted somewhere <laughs> to the web because <laughs> I think some of it was pretty awful. Um, so even, you know, I've had my students write essays for Medium before, um, which I think is, it solves a great problem with writing is having our students know what audience they should be writing for Mm -hmm. but i always make it optional if they want to publish it um because i think there's some really great writing on medium because the pieces tend to be a little bit smaller it's very um you know there's different kinds of writing and personal essays and reflections some of it's political some of it's a little more academic and book reviews so it's a great outlet to show students different examples of the kinds of writing that they'll probably do when they graduate i I, you know they're not they're probably not going to be academics they're not going to write journal articles thankfully Um, but that that is more like the kinds of things they're going to that they're going to have to do Um, but i always make it optional about whether they want to share it um, because i'm worried about the anxiety that they might have Um, we had we have um, a platform here a public platform that we call shoe square and it's a way to have faculty and students share their work across courses Uh, and i had a a little bit of a, an issue with it a, a couple of semesters ago when we started it. One of my students had posted something and it was projected into a class. And one of the students commented on something that she said and I, in, in a critical way and word got back to her that they were projecting her work in the class and making fun of it. Mm. Um, and she, she didn't think she was a very strong writer. And it was, it was a really a sort of wake up call for me that, you know, we need to do everything we can as instructors to make sure that our students are producing work and learning in safe spaces. And maybe safe spaces aren't always public spaces. Well, thank you so much. I love all these tools and I'm going to be busily, excitedly putting together the show notes. And uh, before we conclude, we have the recommendation segment. I'm just going to quickly mention a novel that I enjoyed reading in January. And I used to think it was called A Man Named Ove because that's what I had always heard everyone refer to this wonderful novel by. But I saw on Goodreads that it's actually Uva, A Man Named Uva, because it is a Swedish novel. So in this best-selling and delightfully quirky debut novel from Sweden, a grumpy yet lovable man finds his solitary world turns turned on its head when a boisterous young family moves next door. Meet Uva. He's a curmudgeon, the kind of man who points at people he dislikes as if they were burglars caught outside his bedroom window. And behind the cranky exterior, there is a story and a sadness. It's just a delightful story. And if someone needs a good novel to read to take you away from what's happening in this world, (laughs) it's a good one. (laughs) I was mentioning to Steve before we started recording that I had a few political things I was going to share since he's a political scientist and then felt guilty for laughing at what's happening in the world. And he said, that's okay. So I'm feeling better now that that I'm allowed to laugh and cry all on the same day. (laughs) And Steve, what do you have to recommend today? 
Okay, I have a couple of quick ones. Uh, I, I wanted to mention uh, at some point, but we didn't get into the, the main part of the show, about Ublend. It's uh, yeah. some developers at the University of Oxford are putting together a, a new platform. It's um, they're, it's with education in mind, and they're very deliberate about the mobile part of it. So uh, they, they, not that they're trying to take down Slack, but they're trying to make, make a Slack-like application that might be a little simpler and maybe a little more user-friendly for either faculty or students. Uh, and the one thing I like about it is that it looks a lot like a discussion board and maybe it looks like Facebook in that the, the uh, it gives a little bit more prominence to the faculty and what we present um, in terms of our discussion. Like if we were to post a discussion question, the questions are easier to find and the student responses are easier to find. Uh, Slack is more just like a long list. Um, so it, it, it sometimes it gets a little uh, confusing if there's a long discussion. Um, so I think the Ublend in a lot of ways is superior to, to Slack in that way because of how they, they present the discussions. Mm. Um, and the other thing, so I, I'm going to go old school for my last one. It's a book by Susan Blum, Analog, right? It's called I Love Learning, I Hate School, An Anthropology of College. And so she's an anthropologist at Notre Dame, and she um, begins with the premise that we're social beings and naturally curious, um, which is understandable. I, I, I think that's true. But then she <laughs> recounts all the ways in which school um, frustrates that tendency, um, and she has this really great section where she talks about the you know, school as an institution and the way that it's structured. And it sounds it sounds ridiculous. I've really used it as a touchstone since I've read it a, a year ago, just in thinking that anything that we can do as faculty members and professors to harness this natural love of learning that our students have and make it feel less like it's you know required, that it's institutional, that it's bureaucratic. Uh, I, I think is a good thing. So I would encourage everybody to to read. I love learning. I hate school by Susan Blum. Oh, sounds so good. Well, Steve, it has been so good to get to know you a little bit on the Teaching in Higher Ed Slack channel and also just through our other communication. And thanks so much for being a guest on today's show and sharing all this great information. Thank you so much, Bonnie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Steve Michaels for joining me on today's episode and to all of you for listening. And as always, I'd like to remind you that I send out a weekly email with all of the links of the great stuff that are talked about on each show, including all the stuff that Steve mentioned on today's episode. And if you'd like to receive that email, you can go to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe, and you'll get just a single email each week with the show notes and also an article written about teaching or productivity and that's that's written by me and if you have yet to leave a review for the show you know I always like to give you a little nudge here at the end of the episode that's the best way where we can spread the word about the show whatever service it is you use to listen if it's iTunes you just go to ratings and reviews once you you're on the episode page and give it some stars or write about your experience listening to the show that's the best way to help other people discover it Thanks so much for listening and I will see you next time.